good morning. It's been a while, hasn't it? <laughs> I had to stop myself from singing. <laughs> so at home, it's okay, you can sing. I got here and I immediately started to open my mouth. I thought, nope, whoops, stop. God, I can't do that. <laughs> well, it's great to be here again. And thank you. <laughs> and um, first up, um, I want to welcome a special guest this morning. And Mark and I are welcoming our new family member, our little granddaughter. Uh, for those who are online, she was born on the 23rd of September, Amarise, a means chosen by God. What a beautiful name. What a beautiful name. And we're really grateful to God. Uh, they live in Victoria and we're just like, thank you, God. <laughs> Baby delivered safely. All right, this morning. Uh, before I start, let's start with a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we just stand here in your presence with humble hearts, Lord, knowing that you are our Saviour, our Redeemer. Lord, I ask for your anointing that the words I speak will touch people's hearts this morning, Lord, that will open ears and eyes that will motivate and set people on fire this morning, Lord. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, so we're looking at Mark chapter 8, only four verses this morning. And to set the scene, Caleb talked to us about the feeding of the 4,000 last week. And now we find that the disciples and Jesus have come to Bethsaida. And Bethsaida actually means house of fishing or place of hunting. It was a village on the north part of the Sea of Galilee. And we also know from scriptures that three disciples came from there. John 1:44 tells us that Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. But unfortunately, that's about all the good news there is about Bethsaida. Because despite witnessing the miracles of Jesus, like the feeding of the 5,000, walking on water, healing of the blind man, the village was actually cursed and condemned by Jesus. In Matthew 11, verses 20 to 24, then Jesus began to criticise. Now, when Jesus speaks, you really should pay attention. So Jesus began to criticise openly the cities in which he had done many of his miracles because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it would be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, you will be exalted to heaven. No, you will be thrown down to Hades. For if the miracles done among you have been done in Sodom, it would have continued to this day. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for, you, for the region of Sodom on the day of judgment than it will be for you. And when I read this, I, I, get, I get devastated and sad. 
Because this town was spiritually bankrupt. They were spiritually dead. And I'm finding that more and more today that people are hardening their hearts towards God and to the things of God. And even Christians sometimes I'm finding, they're hardening them, you know, their hearts towards God and his word. However, there was hope. Though the village of Bethsaida was spiritually dead, though the village had rejected the teaching and his miracles, Jesus, the verse 22 tells us in Mark chapter 8, that there were some, there were some who had some sort of faith and acknowledged the power of Christ to save and to heal. And for whatever reason, they bring a blind man to Jesus to be healed. And I say, thank God that there was someone Thank God that there was someone who stepped in to instigate and initiate contact with Jesus. This, of course, was not the first time that this sort of thing had happened. There were others who had brought people to Christ. In Matthew 4.24, it says, The news about him spread all over Syria. And people brought to him all who are ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures and paralysed, and he healed them. Another great example is the man who was lowered down through the roof. Mark 2 verses 1 to 12. Some men came bringing to him a paralysed man carried by four of them. Since they not, could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat with the man on it in front of Jesus. And that to me is a great story of determination by others. So if we have these great examples of people leading others to Christ, what is it that we need to learn? What is it, you know, that needs to reignite our passion? Well, I believe, and this is what I want to focus on today, is about being an instigator for God. And I understand that using a word like instigator can often have problematic association. People can be seen as negative instigators or perhaps have experienced someone who's been a negative instigator. But an instigator can be both good and bad. Like in the story of Mark, some people were good instigators. The dictionary actually defines an instigator as person a person who brings about or initiates something. So some people can start out having good intentions for instigating an action, but they can get sidetracked 
by other influences. So this morning, I want to share, I want to illustrate actually, about being an instigator for God. Now, I know I haven't, I'm not, you know, using all of the four verses from Mark 8 this morning, 22 to 26. I just felt led by God just to talk about how there were some people who instigated for someone else to come to Christ. And I want to share my own personal testimony of how I came to Christ. And I want to share about how I had good instigators for God who led me to him. But as I share my testimony, I want you to sit there and think about, and at home, how you came to Christ. Did you come through by another person? Or did you simply go seeking? Whatever it is, I want you to think about your testimony, how you came to Christ. I'm so grateful to God that there were people in my life who instigated in me being led to Christ. I'm grateful they took the initiative to want me to be saved, to experience Jesus. And I'm grateful that they were part of my spiritual journey. They were discipling me. Now, I didn't grow up in a house of faith. We didn't read the Bible. We didn't pray. We didn't talk about God. Now, I'm 56 years old. I know I don't look it. But But I was sent to Sunday school like most kids back then. And Sunday school was seen as, you know, you sent your kids and they heard Bible stories, but we'd never heard a salvation message. You know, it was the theory that, oh, you know, kids can't get saved, blah, 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 you know, but so I only heard stories about Jesus. So I did that for a while. And my parents, they didn't go to church with me. My dad was an atheist and a communist. Don't see how those two fit together, but anyway. That's what he would say he was. So he didn't encourage us to have faith. And our mother, well, she didn't either. But I went to Sunday school for a while until about my teenage years. And then I stopped going. But during this time, my sister and her husband got saved. They found Christ at a different denomination. I won't say which one. They got saved and they found Christ. And immediately when they found Christ, they started witnessing to us. So I started going to church with them. And it it was at this church, for the first time, I heard a salvation message. I had learnt and heard how Jesus died on the cross for me, took the punishment of my sin for me. 
And it was there at that church that I received Christ as my saviour. But the story didn't end there. My sister and brother-in-law had instigated my salvation and me being led to Christ, but it didn't end there. They continued to be, you know, discipling me during that time and helping me. They had a huge impact on my Christian life and moving forward. I went to that church during my teenage years. My mother said, you can't get baptised in water until you're 18. Well, as soon as I turned 18, <laughs> I got baptised in water. And then in 1980, my journey continued again. You know, my sister and that, they were active disciples. They were witnessing to people and, you know, it was great. But in 1980, my sister received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, don't shut down when you hear that. Keep an open mind. And I remember it like it was yesterday. We were sitting in the back seat of their car. I was sitting in the back seat of their car. We'd just come home from church. And they said to me, they started talking to me about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. And they said, said Joe, do you want to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And I said, yeah. And so they prayed for me. They laid hands on me and I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and I started speaking in tongues. And the Lord said to my sister, tell her that she's going to blossom. So my sister said, Joe, the Lord told me to tell you, you're going to blossom. Now I was about 16 and I thought, well, that's nice. You know, went on my way. <laughs> and uh, still, you know, was learning about praying in tongues and things like that. But it wasn't until I got to the end of high school where I had failed my exams and, you know, I wasn't going anywhere and my behaviour was not pleasing to God. I knew that. I knew that in my heart. I thought, I'm not living a life that's pleasing to God. So I prayed. I remembered what my sister had said to me and I said, Lord, you said that I was going to blossom. Anyway, one thing led to another and again my sister and brother-in-law were there discipling me and helping me and instigating an action towards God. They had been to a Pentecostal church not far from where I lived and they said, we're going to go there. You want to come? Yeah, okay, I'll go. And I went there. I stayed in that church 25 years. I met Mark there. My daughter was baptised there. The first night that I went, I was introduced to the youth leader and to a lovely couple who lived not far from where I lived. And they came to me and they said, Joe, here's our phone number. If you ever want to ride to church, we'll come and get you. And they did. I'm grateful for that because someone stepped in and initiated me and my walk with Christ. Discipleship is about joining in 
on someone's spiritual journey. As they grow in Christ. The story doesn't end when someone gets saved. Yes, we instigate, you know, them, you know, being led to Christ, but it doesn't end there. The real, the real journey and the real, you know, work of discipleship really begins after when someone accepts Christ. Now, that's my story. And I understand that's not the same for everyone. And the reason I share it is to showcase the importance of personal testimony. Sharing your personal testimony, in my opinion, is basically is basic discipling 101. And when you do, you're actually becoming an instigator for God. But what does the Bible say about it all? I want to go back to the Gospel of Mark. Mark 2, 13 to 15. I get emotional about it because I understand the importance of what these people did in my life and I'm grateful. Mark 2, verses 13 to 15. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him. And then he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. Levi got up and followed him. Now, what do we read here? We read Levi, the tax collector, was sitting at his job. And Jesus walks up to him and says, come follow me. What does Levi do? He drops everything and follows Jesus. He's going about his daily job and he just drops it all and goes. And he follows Jesus. And I get excited to read that because some people will just come to Christ like that. Hallelujah if they do. But the story doesn't end there. What does Levi do? Levi throws a big supper. In Luke, it says a great banquet. Now, because tax collectors weren't popular people, Levi works with what and who he knows and who he already has connections with. And what better way to do it than with food? Everyone loves food. And for some reason, it's a great way to build relationships, to bring people together. So Levi instantly becomes an instigator for God, bringing others to Jesus. Now, that's one great example. But there's a great, even better ones that I love to read about, and that is found in the Gospel of John. John 1, verses 35 to 46. We read about the calling of some of the disciples here. The next day, John, we're talking about John the Baptist here, was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. 
When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Now, if you talk about a pivotal moment, this is a pivotal moment. John the Baptist becomes the instigator by declaring, look, the Lamb of God. And we find out that Andrew is one of the two disciples. So he hears what John the Baptist says and follows Jesus. But then it goes on, verse 43. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah. Personal testimony. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. And then verse 45 Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Messiah Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus, Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Personal testimony. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, come and see. Let's go back to the first encounter with Jesus. Jesus invites Andrew and another disciple to come and see where he's staying. And then the three of them spend the whole day together. It went from knowing about a Messiah coming to experiencing Jesus, the Messiah. This is real discipleship. Discipleship involves spending time with people so they can see faith lived out in real situations, in real life by real people. Discipleship is not just about hearing theological truths or the basics of Christian faith. They're good, but it's about learning how to follow Jesus. It's sort of like an apprenticeship. You, you apprentice with someone who has, a, you know, is more mature, more experienced. It's like that when we're discipling people. We, we, you know, we apprentice with someone who has more, they're more seasoned, they're more mature with their walk with God. That was Andrew and Philip. Philip echoes the words, come and see. That whole scene has a rippling effect in one person being led to Christ to another to another. Starts with John the Baptist. He testifies, Andrew hears it, hears it, follows Christ and Peter. Then we have Philip who though testifies to Nathaniel. And we, 
You know, they've met and experienced Jesus and in turn go to others and tell them to come and see. There are two key points here. The first, again, I'll say personal testimony. They witness and become instigators for Jesus. They are enabled, then in turn enable others. We need to let the image of this sit in our hearts. It's powerful ministry. It's powerful discipling. Yet it's so easy. It's being an instigator for God. The second key is enthusiasm or passion. Andrew says to Peter, I have found the Messiah. What greater thing than that? His passion, his enthusiasm. And what better motivate, what these things should motivate us that we've found Christ and we want to share it with others. Are you enthusiastic that you have found Christ? Are you enthusiastic about sharing that experience with others? One more example. Are you all with me? Everybody's with me? Everyone's with me? Okay. One more example. Now, you're probably thinking, well, that's great, Joe. But I grew up in a Christian home. Well, praise God if you did. But I've got news for you, that doesn't let you off the hook. I want to remind you of Timothy. Timothy was a great worker with Paul on his missionary trips. Timothy had a grandmother and a mother. His grandmother was Lois and his mother was Eunice. And they had a huge impact on his life. And Paul commends them for the teaching they gave Timothy. 2 Timothy 1.5. Turn the page. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. And I am persuaded now lives in you also. Lois and Eunice were instigators for Timothy. But it didn't stop there for Timothy. Though he became a great asset to Paul on his missionary trips, Paul charges Timothy with making more disciples. 2 Timothy 2.2, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You receive the teaching, in turn teach others, who will teach others, so forth and so forth. So what does all this mean? How do we bring all this together? Well, what I read here is a model of ministry. It's a model of discipleship. And it doesn't involve the four walls of the church. (gasps) Did I say that? Okay, no lightning. Cool. Doesn't involve the four walls of the church. I see a huge difference between what Jesus models and what we as believers are doing in churches today. And it saddens me. Where did Jesus minister? Jesus ministered on a hill, beside the lake, on a mountain, in a house, in the village, on the streets, by the well. 
Being an instigator for God means that we join in with someone on their road of discipleship. That's where our focus should be attending. It's not just about, it's not about drawing people into the four walls of the church just to fill a program. We need to change our thinking from just being program driven to being people driven. We've fooled ourselves into thinking that the church is the only place someone can get saved or the only place that someone will hear the gospel or, Lord forbid, it's the minister's job. No, 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 no. You are the first point of contact with the gospel, with someone else. Jesus sought people out like he did with Levi. Do you seek people out? Do you desire to instigate a conversation and interaction with others about God? I get it. It's hard and even scary at times because, you, you know, you're friends with someone and you don't want to upset them and you start talking about God. But to not, to not talk about God and not give it a chance is even worse because their eternal, eternal destiny is at stake. And we need to be honest and ask ourselves, are we failing because we're focusing on making sure our programs are running? And I know at the moment we're not running programs and perhaps it's a good opportunity to reevaluate and to seriously look at what we're doing and how effective it is. Have we started with good intentions of instigating an action? But in the end, we've got sidetracked by other issues. People need to be led to Christ, to repent of their sins. That, should, that should, is what should motivate us and drive us. Our passion and desire should drive us because we have found Christ. We need to have a sense of urgency about sharing our faith. Time is running out. And we need to stop being embarrassed about sharing our faith. Almost to the point where we're apologetic. Apologetic. Sorry, I'm a Christian. The gospel is powerful and we forget that. And we shouldn't underestimate God's power to change hearts when we're sharing it. All right, to finish, it's a choice. God isn't going to make us do anything. You've heard the saying, it takes a village. Well, it's like that in the Christian community. It takes a village. It takes a village of other disciples, more mature disciples, to help nurture and care for others who are growing in the Lord. But it's still a choice, just like the people in Mark 8. They could simply just ignore the man 
and minded their own business. They could have gone along with the status quo of the village. They could have just, you know, be obedient to the religious leaders, but they didn't. I encourage you this morning to make the choice of being an instigator for God. Make the choice of leading people to Christ. And do it because you have experienced Christ, your personal testimony. Do not underestimate your personal testimony of how you came to Christ. Know why you came to Christ. And when you do, your ability to be an instigator for God will flourish. I pray and hope this morning that your passion has been reignited and your desire to see others lost come to Christ. I could have, you know, I felt led to give this message this morning. I could have probably gone and done a great big study about, you know, the blind man and why did Jesus, you know, take two turns. And we can talk about that on Wednesday. But it's important. We need to be passionate about bringing others to Christ. So I want to close in prayer now. And I actually want to pray a prayer of salvation. I don't know where you are spiritually, but God does. He sees your heart. If you haven't experienced Christ and you are unsure of your salvation and you want to be sure, then please pray this prayer with me. Dear Jesus, I'm a sinner and I know that I need a Saviour and that Saviour is You, Jesus. Thank You for coming and dying on the cross and take the punishment for my sin. Forgive me for all the wrong things that I've done. Come into my heart now and be my Lord and Saviour. Help me to live a life that follows You and honours You all the days of my life. In Jesus' Name, Amen. The Bible says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved.